Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn how to walk a path of purpose and presence. My first guest is Sadvi Bhagawati Saraswati, and she serves on the United Nations Advisory Council on Religion and on Steering Committees of the International Partnership for Religion and Sustainable Development, also known as PARD. In addition, Sadvi is a part of the Moral Imperative to End Extreme Poverty, a campaign by the United Nations and World Bank. Sadvi has lived for the past 25 years at the Parmarth Nikitan Ashram in Rishikesh, India, where she oversees a variety of humanitarian projects, teaches meditation, lectures, writes, counsels individuals and families, and serves as a unique female voice of spiritual leadership throughout India and the world. In addition, she is the author of Hollywood to the Himalayas, A Journey of Healing and Transformation. Welcome, Sadvi. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Well, thank you so much. And it's such a joy to be together with you and especially talking about such a critical and powerful topic. I agree. And one that if we all perhaps focused a little more upon, you know, what are we really here to do in our lives? You know, finding our way to that place of purpose and wholeness that the world would experience a lot more joy. Absolutely. One of the things that I realize so deeply is we don't know who we are. And since we don't know who we are, we don't know what to do. And so most people tend to spend their lives doing based on not an awareness of who they are, but rather based on something that happened to them in their childhood, some idea they got, some teaching they got, some pressure they got, some agenda that some important person in their life had for them, some cultural or societal norm that said, this is what you do. And then as our lives go on, we continue to do based on input from those around us, whether it's what our parents want us to do or our spouses want us to do or the influencers we follow on social media want us to do. And we we keep doing like that. And then we self-identify based on what we do. So we've got it all backwards rather than understanding the self and then blossoming and flourishing into connected, grounded, uplifted movement from there, we do. And then we say, oh, I practice medicine. I'm a doctor. That's my identity. Or I go out and get drunk every night. I'm an alcoholic. And we create these identities based on what we do. And so I agree. I think one of the core critical aspects for real joy, happiness, peace, meaning, fulfillment in our life is to first understand who we are so that then what to do comes very naturally. I am drawn to your story and your book, Hollywood to the Himalayas, A Journey of Healing and Transformation, for several reasons. The first one that comes to mind is you and I share an, a similar upbringing 
in Southern California in families that I think were uh, focused on achievement or overachievement. There were some traumatic things that happened that led to some other traumatic things that happened. And then you and I went on different paths of discovery. And I'd love for you to share your story because I think it will be meaningful to our listeners. Absolutely. It's been such an extraordinary story, not just in the plot of it, the adventure of it, the joy, the heartbreak, the struggles, you know, like any good story, it's got all of those in very, very powerful ways. But for me, it's been an extraordinary story, and I'll, I'll share the details of it in a moment, it's been so powerful because of the lessons that have come through living it. Lessons that I had no idea I was looking to learn and yet which have unfolded as integral parts of the journey. So I, as you said, I grew up in Los Angeles and I really had from the outside looking in everything that we are told one needs to be happy. Hmm. So I had all of the opportunity. It was a very privileged upbringing in so many ways. I had access to anything and everything that I could want, including the very best of an education. And I ended up graduating from Stanford University and was in the midst of getting my PhD in psychology. I had a very active and wonderful social life. I was married to a wonderful man. We had gotten married just after I graduated from Stanford undergrad. And I had a life of travel and adventure and service. And it really seemed from the outside looking in, you would have thought, this girl's got it all. And in addition to the normal, and I, this is audio, not video, but quote. <laughs> imagine, imagine the air quotations yes. around normal <laughs> um, struggles and strains and challenges of growing up anywhere, of just navigating the who am I in the world experience with Parents are doing their very best in the midst of their own life unfolding. In addition to that, I also had some very severe specific challenges. I was sexually abused as a very young child and then abandoned my biological father whom we, we refer to as the sperm donor because <laughs> that was pretty much the only beneficial thing he brought to the party, uh, had severely sexually abused me as a very young child. And then when I was eight, called and said, I never want to see you again. And it was obviously extraordinarily traumatic. It mm. also, in so many ways, was a great blessing, the abandonment part, because my mom had married another man who was just the most wonderful, amazing, God-given human to enter, enter my life before my guru did. And the abandonment by my biological father really enabled me to fully become the daughter of this man who really was all things dad. But nonetheless, it left incredible scars and trauma upon mm. me. And yeah. I dealt with it the way that so many of us deal with that, which is upsetting us and causing us to suffer, which is we try to make it go away. We've got a very well-intentioned, great instinct within ourselves that says, I don't want to feel like this. I shouldn't feel like this. This isn't right. I didn't know what else to do. And so as so many, we turn to alcohol, drugs, food, sex, gambling, 
whatever our addiction of choice may be. And I became severely bulimic. I was in and out of hospitals, tubes in me, IVs. I mean, I was really, really sick. And that was late adolescence and early, early 20s. And I got help and I learned to manage my pain. I learned to manage my stress. I learned to manage my food. And I really was living in a situation where I thought, okay, this is what we do. We just manage our lives. And I manage my marriage and I manage the stress around school and I manage having to eat three times a day and I manage all of these things. And everyone I knew was pretty much doing their own version of managing their lives. Everyone was on some spectrum of either managing well or managing not so well. But that was, it seemed, the very best we could hope for. And at 25, I traveled to India with a backpack, not because I was on a spiritual quest, but because my husband was. And (laughs) yeah, I, I had never, never been on a spiritual quest. I had always felt that somehow it wasn't for me, that it wasn't applicable to me, that I was sort of tainted, damaged, not right, dark, impure, and not really worthy of all of that. And that was okay. I mean, in my managing my life life, I was an academic. I was a scientist. I wasn't raised religious, so it wasn't this vacuum in me that I was aware of on any level. And then we land up in India, a place I had agreed to go only because I loved the food. I was a strict vegetarian and knew that I could eat really happily in India. And we get there and fast forwarding, of course, through a lot of the really beautiful but nonetheless long stories that are in the book of how we ended up in Rishikesh, how we ended up at exactly the place where we did. I had this extraordinary spiritual awakening experience standing on the banks of the Ganga River, what we call the Ganges River. And my heart just exploded. And my entire way of thinking about myself and the world and my place in the world, everything exploded. And I just knew in that moment that I was one with God and that everything was perfect and beautiful. And I was part of that perfection. And of course, that didn't mean there was no more work to be done. There was still obviously a lot of work to be done. But it was such a powerful experience that literally for weeks just rendered me rendered me pretty much nonverbal. All I could say was just, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. Oh, my God, it's so beautiful. Oh, my <laughs> God, it's so beautiful. And that began the next 25 years of my life where I've now been living in Rishikesh at Parmarth Nikatan, studying, doing a lot of spiritual work and doing a lot of spiritual teaching. We're going to take a pause. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with my incredibly interesting guest today, Sadvi Bhagavati Saraswati. We're talking about what it means to find one's place on the planet. And her book is Hollywood to the Himalayas, A Journey of Healing and Transformation. To learn more, please visit www.sadvig.org on Twitter at Sadvi Bhagavati. And on Facebook, that page is Sadvi Bhagavati Saraswati. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Hang on. Before we take that little break, I want to remind you about my harmless secret obsession. As a regular listener of the show, you know how I love to amuse myself with best fiends. In my humble opinion, it's the best match three style game out there. What I love most is that best fiends is an action packed adventure and a brain boosting puzzle game all rolled into one 
that challenges my mind in new ways. Not to brag or anything, but I'm strategizing and conquering my way towards level 5,396 and counting. Best Fiends is my go-to digital play pal, and I'm happily hooked. And if you're anything like me, you will be too. The fun never ends at Best Fiends because there are constant updates and always something new to explore. There's no game over with thousands of puzzle levels. You'll never run out of goals to achieve. So stop crushing the same old candy and try a puzzle game with something fresh to offer. Need a little mental pick-me-up? Stress less and play more. Come join me for a squeaky clean good time. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Now let's take that pause. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back. But before we rejoin the conversation, listen to this. Don't you just love that sound? Who says money can't buy a little happiness? That joyful little cha-ching is the sound of a new sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform that grows with you. Shopify will help you start, run, and grow your business from anywhere in the world. Shopify gives entrepreneurs like me customizable resources to make ideas into things that sell and the extensive tools to help manage the back end of the business. Shopify is your gateway to building online sales and bringing new products to market possible. Oh, how I love that Shopify gives me the ability to instantly accept all forms of payment for my consulting work and retail sales. More than 10 years ago, I started this podcast to establish professional street cred and build a library of top-notch inspirational content in my area of expertise. Today, Harvesting Happiness remains the same passion project, but now it's a full-time business with lots to manage. Shopify powers more than 1.7 entrepreneurs like me from first sale to full scale. Every 28 seconds, a small business owner is making their first sale with Shopify. Gain knowledge and confidence with Shopify as your commerce partner to help you find customers, drive sales, and oversee your day-to-day. And with 24-7 support, you're never alone. Supercharge your knowledge, your sales, and your success. This is Possibility powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash happiness, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash happiness right now. Shopify.com slash happiness. Now let's get back to it. And we're back talking about what it means to walk a path of purpose and presence. My guest is Sadvi Bhagawati Saraswati. Let's get back to the conversation. So Sadvi, before we went to the break, you were talking about the beginning of the 25-year journey after you landed in Rishikesh. And I would love for you to continue with this story because my eyes are closed, as I'm sure many of our listeners who are able to do so as well. And there's full color of the journey coming into my mind's eye. Oh, so beautiful. Yes, it it has been extraordinary. And it's been a journey of great adventure, great expansion, great opening, great ecstasy, and also great challenge. Because while in the first few years, through the grace of the way that I was taught to let go and forgive and understand that that is not my identity, you know, I had carried that identity as abuse survivor, bulimic. These these were my identities. And when I first met my guru and I had asked him about fear, he said, you fear because you don't trust. And I gave him my whole story, all of my identities. And it was a story that up until that moment had always gotten me great sympathy. Everybody was always like, oh, ho, ho, oh you poor, poor thing. thing. <laughs> they, you know, like, they're dear. They're there. Exactly. And there was never any question about 
what I was or was not doing in my life, how I was or was not standing up to the plate of my life, how I was or was not opening my heart to the presence of grace, how I was or was not living in love and in trust and in connection. There was no question about that because I had been harmed and therefore I had this very ready-made excuse for why I continued to suffer, why I was not accepting this extraordinary invitation that the universe has given all of us to re-remember our oneness with it, to reunite. You know, the word yoga means union. Yes. But I think about it more as a reunion because it's not two becoming one. It's the second part of one re-remembering that it actually isn't separate at all. And it's always been part of the one. So over the first few years, and again, I'm not going to go into all of the stories now. I know our time is short, but they are, they're all there in all of their detail in the book. I was taught to let go, to forgive, to not identify with that, that being who had been harmed. And of course, it wasn't right what happened to her, but that wasn't me today. Yeah. And after the first few years of that, The other main thread for me that wove through a lot of this was the thread of service and the teaching of serving others as a means to heal, as a means to awaken, as a means to unite and connect with the divine. And it has been the most extraordinary 25 years. And of course, there have been new challenges in it. There are challenges of being a a woman and especially a white woman in a in a man's world of religion in India. There are challenges around decisions that we make in our life. You know, I always talk about life being package deals and it's not it's not a buffet. It's not that it's it's not that you get to say, well, I want this and I want that. I want to be a celibate, renunciant, spiritual leader, and I simultaneously want to be a wife and a mother. They just they don't go together. You can you can choose either one. Yeah. But they don't you can't have them both. Now, of course, it's important to just clarify, you certainly can be a wife or a husband and a mother or a father and have a deep, deep, fulfilling, enriched spiritual life. But as far as life dharmas and paths go, if you're walking a path of renunciation and celibacy and the equivalent of being a nun, well, that precludes being a wife and mother in the Hindu tradition. If you live in Rishikesh, it precludes living anywhere else. And those were were pieces that I, I struggled with at various times, believing that somehow if my meditation was just strong enough, I would actually be able to manifest a life in which everything could happen simultaneously. And I've realized over the years that life offers us this extraordinary option of different package deals. But it doesn't say you can pile anything and everything simultaneously onto the same plate and expect to have a life that is anything other than chaotic and frenetic and impossible. So those are other challenges that arose. Challenges of being a disciple. I mean, I was a super high achieving, you know, young American Jewish woman. And to suddenly become a a disciple of a male Hindu master, that was a challenge. What does that mean? 
Oh, I, I have a hundred questions, but we'll have to do, we'll have to have you back and, and we'll do a part two. Don't we'll worry. definitely we'll do, a part. do a part two because I, I am seeing or getting the feeling that I'm understanding a bit of your dilemma. And at the same time, if we look at it on a very spiritual level, it's like, consider the uses of adversity. You know, there's the, there's the triumph of, over the initial adversities. And then there are these elevated adversities. And how does that play into your evolution? Absolutely. Exactly. And that for me is where writing this book has been such a blessing because while everyone's physical journey is different and not everyone is going to walk literally, physically, from Hollywood to the Himalayas via Palo Alto. The, <laughs> In saffron ropes. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the other arc, the journey of our way of thinking and our way of identifying and our way of suffering in our dramas, in our stuckness, is actually everyone's journey. And that for me was the greatest motivation to do this. My life is in service. I'm a, I'm a nun. And, and of course, a hundred percent of everything that comes in from the book goes directly to the charities for women and girls in the Himalayas. But nonetheless, it was hundreds of hours of work. And I did it because I see so much suffering around the world that is due not to lack of food or lack of clean water or lack of education or lack of access to medical care, but that is due to our inability to break free from our patterns of thought. And for me, this book has been an offering of Here's my story. You will laugh. You will cry. It's a great adventure. And it can be your story on the level of the healing and the transformation that what I've learned applies to you as well. Well, it's very much the human story, right? The triumph over adversity, the, the hero's or the shiro's journey. Absolutely. Although for me, it was much more a journey of creating space within myself. So typically when we think about a hero's journey, we think about fighting and battles. And I, I began with that, you know, on a spiritual path, they talk about annihilating the ego and doing battle with the ego. And I went into it with that concept in the beginning. And what I discovered was, regardless of who had won or who had lost that day, I was sleeping with the enemy, that I was in bed <laughs> with the yes. one I was fighting. Yep. And it just did not make for really good night sleeps. And so I shifted the way I think about it to, we're not fighting. We're not trying to annihilate a part of ourself. Because of course, Every time in your mind you say, I'm going to annihilate the ego, well, guess who's listening? Guess who has front row seats to the voices in your mind? <laughs> yeah, right. We take ourselves so with ourselves. The ego. So the ego's <laughs> like, ah, oh, no, you're not. So, so it's, it's ready for battle before we even start. And for me, what's been so powerful is instead of that, to think about it as creating space. A rock can create a massive chaos if it is dropped into a little glass of water. It'll splash all the water over yes. the edge. It could break the glass. But that same rock, if it's dropped into the ocean, barely causes a ripple. And instead of trying to do battle with the rocks in my life, I shifted my focus to becoming the ocean mm. and to experiencing that spaciousness in which, yeah, there's an ego and yeah, there's challenges and difficulties and desires. And yeah, there is freedom and there is joy and there is exuberance and there is connection and it all coexists. 
Sarvi, we're out of time and I, we have to continue this story. So yes, there will be a part two. And if we've drawn you into Sadvi's story, I'm so joyful for that. The book we're speaking about is Hollywood to the Himalayas, A Journey of Healing and Transformation. To learn more about Sadvi, Bhagavati, Saraswati, please visit her website, sadvig.org, on Twitter at Sadvi Bhagavati, and on Facebook, that page is Sadvi Bhagavati Saraswati. Sadvi, this has been just a delight for me, and I'm so grateful that you, you stopped by to see me today. Well, I am so grateful to have been together. And just to add also, there is a website called Hollywood to the Himalayas.com. And that has chapters you can download for free. It has all the information about the book and links you to all of the other pages that you've just given so beautifully. So that may be easier to remember. It's just Hollywood to the Himalayas.com. Perfect. And I also links the world to the good work that you're doing. Well, thank you so, so much for this beautiful time together. Thank you. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Continuing the conversation about what it takes to walk the path of purpose and presence. My next guest is Peter Russell. Peter Russell is a contemporary spiritualist. Russell earned a first class honor degrees in theoretical physics and psychology, as well as a master's degree in computer science at the University of Cambridge, England. He also studied meditation and Eastern philosophy in India. He is the author of Letting Go of Nothing, Relax Your Mind and Discover the Wonder of Your True Nature. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining us on the show. Lovely to be with you. Oh, lovely to have you and lovely to talk about this notion of more fully occupying our lives and what it takes, or perhaps it's the other way around, how little it takes to actually do so. Yes, exactly. That's the essence. We put far too much into the doing and far less into the undoing. Yeah. And talk about why letting go is so valuable. I mean, it really is a precious skill. Yes, yes. And it's something I think all the great spiritual traditions have talked about in one way or another. They talked about letting go of attachments, desires, forgiveness is letting go. It's a, such a common theme. I think it's something we all like to do. And people say, oh, if only I could just let go, but, you know, find it hard to do. It's. I think it's so valuable because when we hold on, when we hold on to some attachment to something, whether it's a thing, a person, an idea, a feeling, whatever it is, we're actually creating tension and discontent in ourselves. And so when we let go, the fundamental thing that almost everybody experiences in letting go is a sense of ease, a sense of relief, a sense of relaxation. So I think that's, you know, the fundamental thing is when we let go, we feel more at ease and we come back to ourselves. And yet it is very challenging for us because we're always, as humans, most of us are in a state of constant want of grasping and clinging and wanting or desiring life or circumstance or ourselves to be different, right? And then that sets yes. up this this struggle, you know, this, con like you said, the constant tension. And yet to let go is the act of letting go is such a simple thing to release, but so difficult to do. Right. And that's because I think we're so conditioned by our culture, almost from the moment we're born, we're conditioned into this belief that we have to do the right things, get the right things in order to be happy. And then we get attached to what we think we need to have to be happy. And the letting go is not so much the letting go of things, but the letting go of this idea of attachment, letting go of this idea we have to have things this way. And I think that that's what gets in the way of our really feeling at ease is this wanting to make the world right the whole time. And I think, again, what all the you know great teachings and philosophies have said is 
you know, we, we do too much. We need to let go of that trying to do things. And we, you know, what we're looking for ultimately is how to feel okay in ourselves. We're looking to be happy, to be at peace. And the holding on actually gets in the way of that. Paradoxically, we sort of think if we hold on to things, we, we're going to feel better. Yeah. But actually, it's the opposite. Perhaps it's the when we hold on to something that we know isn't good for us, you know, whatever the attachment might be, right? A person, place, yep. thing, idea, or feeling, right? But at least it's a known quantity or known entity. So the, if we let go of it, maybe on some level, there's a fear, well, what will we replace that with? Right. And actually letting go of something doesn't mean getting rid of it. It may, it may mean getting rid of it, but it's really about letting go of our attachment to it, our sort of emotional, psychological investment in it. So it can still be there, but we've changed our attitude, we've changed our mind about it. So it's not, it's not necessarily about getting rid of something. It's more this, this inner change of mind that, that's important. Well, the title of, of the book is Letting Go of Nothing, right? Yeah. So what do you mean by nothing? Nothing, right. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> well, it's too, I mean, we normally think of letting, people say, I've got to let go of everything. It's the opposite. We don't need to change anything. The nothing is a sort of wordplay a bit. It's no, you know, it's also no thing. What we're letting go of is not, we're not letting go of the things themselves, whether they're material things or even thoughts and beliefs or things. We're not, we're not letting go of that so much. We're letting go, as I say, of our attachment, which is really, Letting go of the way we see things, which is, in a sense, it's a lens. Everything we see, we see through certain lenses. And if the, if the lens is one of neediness or desire or fear, that leads to a sort of attachment of how things should be. So the lens itself is not a thing. But what we're letting go of is a way of seeing, the way we see the world. So, so that, that, in a sense, is nothing. It's no thing. So it's, it's Really, to get over this idea, we've got to actually get rid of things in our lives. I like I like this concept because, excuse me, you're not asking people to let go. Really, you're not asking them to really let go of things. You're asking them to let things be. Yes, yes, exactly. And then, then the sort of letting go happens. And so, when we let things be, we the grasping ceases. We allow them to be as they are, and then. Sometimes miracles happen. Our whole mind changes. We see things differently. Or we just realize, sometimes we realize we don't need that. Or we just have a completely different attitude to it. But but letting be is a theme which comes up again and again and again in so many different teachings. We have a saying in our family that we always giggle. We will, we will say, you know, something happened and that's that. <laughs> you know? Yes. yes. And, exactly. We, the, we is that what you're saying? <laughs> Sorry? Is that kind of what you're saying, you know, and that's yeah, that? Yes, yes. yes. I saw some of the T-shirt. Yeah, said, that's the way it was. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> and there we, you have it. We go over, you know, let go. We let go of the past. We hold on to it. Well, you know, that should I should have done that or that shouldn't have. Or even positive things. Oh, yes. Oh, that was wonderful. I hope I can do that again. It's like the past is the past. Learn from it. It's been great. But, you know, there's no point in holding on to the past and equally no point in holding on to what we think should happen because the future is going to be what it is. Yes. And, you know, I think it's a two-sided coin here that this is what gets us all twisted up as human beings is this need to or the belief that we should somehow be able to forecast and then prepare you know, different contingency plans for different possibilities of what may or could might happen. Right. And it, it makes us sick. And nine times out of 10 never happens. Yes. That's part of the joke. You know, I know the other day I was, you know, having to have a conversation with a friend, which I thought was going to be difficult. And I was going over in my mind when we met what to say, blah, 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 different scenarios. And it turned out completely differently. So we spend a lot of energy and time going over planning for eventualities that probably probably won't happen at all. Yes, and that's not only a waste of time, it's a waste of energy. It creates tension, discontent. Yeah, but the more we can just step out of that, the better. And robs us of a potential moment of joy. Yes, yes. Because we're creating the opposite. We're creating concern, fear, worry. And so we're, we're robbing ourselves of being at, being at peace, being at joy in the present. 
take us through a thought experiment or a handful of thought experiments of ways that we can work with letting go of nothing and letting right. in and letting be, as you describe in the book? Yes, I, I reframe letting go as letting in and letting be, because we normally you know, often think of letting go as actually, as I said, getting rid of something. So I... We, and then we tend to push it to the back of our mind. So if, say, you know, we're feeling um, resentful about something, we want to let go of the resentment, then what I suggest is what we tend to do is think, oh, I've got to push it away. If I let this in, then I might, you know, start, you know, saying nasty things to people or whatever. So we tend to push it away. We feel we're safe if we keep it away. But then we just keep it out on the edge of our consciousness where it just continues to control us. But so what I suggest is, first of all, we let it in. And by letting in, I mean, first of all, allowing in the experience. So if you're feeling something like that, notice what it feels like in the body. Be curious, because there's always something going on in the body with any emotion, whatever it is, there's something going on in the body. Because an emotion is what psychologists call it. It has an action tendency. An emotion wants us to do something. Even feeling depressed, you know, wants us to sort of hide away or something. So there's something going on in the body. We may not notice it, but so the first thing to do is tune into the body. Let it in. Be curious. What's it feel like if I'm feeling this resentment? How's it feel in the body? Oh, there's a slight tightness here or there's a slight, you know, shaking there or whatever it is. Let it in. But then also the other side of any emotion is there's a story to it, which is by which I mean there's something we are telling ourselves about what happened or what might happen. And so also let the story in. And so the resentment might be, you know, this this person shouldn't have done this. They they got in my way, whatever it is. And you know, there's some there's some story there. Let in the story. And then also, once we let the story and we can see it for what it is, we can also begin to ask, you know, how how true is that story or what was going on in the other person's mind? And when you see the story, rather than have it out at the back of our mind controlling us, when you see the story and begin to look at it in a more sort of clear way, it begins to release. We begin to let go of it. So we don't actually do anything to let go the way I approach it, but we, we let in the experience, let it be, and then the letting go begins to happen on its own. Yeah. It is magical in that way. Yeah. You know, and it's a practice, right? I, I mean, yeah. after all these years, do you find that you're 100% spot on with this 100% of the time? <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask that, you know? Yeah, of course. No. <laughs> Thanks for being honest, yeah. right? It's a practice. Yeah. Right. Yes. It's a, it's an ongoing practice. And I think with any practice, we get better at it. We get better at the practice and it also becomes more familiar. It becomes easier. And so, you know, when we let go, there's nearly always a sense of relief that comes. And the more I can sort of taste that relief, the more that becomes a motivation to do it. It's like, I know, oh, the holding on, it's just creating tension. It's just making me feel more upset, whatever it is. And so I know that the letting go works. And so it's like, ah, and then I can just taste that, how it feels, that ease, that relief. And that becomes a positive feedback, encouraging me to do it more. But it's a continual practice. I mean, not every moment, but yeah, there's things that, things that get me going, but hopefully I'm better at seeing them and releasing them than I was way back in the past. Well, I appreciate your candor about, you know, saying you too, as the, as the expert human, you know, have to practice this. You know, I think it, it makes us, it makes you be, you know, like a normal, regular person, which we all loved to know that even experts have to be the student of their own teachings. Oh, oh yes, yes, absolutely. And, and the book, comes all, all comes out of my own experience of, of what I found works for me. And as I say, at the end of the book, you know, it's, it's an ongoing process and we each have to, you know, find the best ways in our life to do this for ourselves. Let's uh, take a quick break 
in my mind's eye as you were speaking, I'm, you know, I'm hearing uh, whispering words of wisdom, right? Let it be. <laughs> let it be, let it be. Let words it be, let it be. I'm speaking with Peter Russell to learn more about his work and his book, Letting Go of Nothing, Relax Your Mind and Discover the Wonder of Your True Nature. Please visit PeterRussell.com. On Twitter, that handle is Peter J. Russell. On Facebook, Peter Russell Author. And on Instagram, Peter Russell Author. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Let's get back to the conversation with Peter Russell. We're talking about what it takes to walk the path of purpose and presence. Peter, prior to the break, you said a few words that really grabbed my attention, and that was to have a taste of relief. Yes, yes. When we let go, we're coming back to our own self in a way, our own, our own inner being. We're coming back in that direction. We're, coming, we're not, we're not, you know, when we let go, we don't instantly get enlightened or whatever, anything like that. But when we come back, there's that sense of, I call it just a sense of, ah, yes, this feels, this feels better. And the more we do it, the, the closer we get to that. So it's just, it's a taste of it. But a taste is really important because the taste is what motivates us to go there more. And really what we're tasting in that relief, that release, whatever we want, whatever word we want to put to it, what we're tasting there, I think is what all the great, you know, masters have known. You know, they've been living it. It's been their reality. So we're beginning to we're beginning to taste what, you know, spiritual awakening is like. And I think, you know, one of the things about it that comes up again and again and again is that it's a sense of ease, a sense of joy, a sense of peace. So that's what we're tasting as, as when we let go. I find that one of the most juicy, tasty senses of relief, and I know that all of the listeners, everybody has had this experience where you grab that one breath and at the release of that breath, there is this sense of full presence you can't really describe what it is, but that's what I have in mind as you describe that taste of relief. Yes, yes, yes. It, and again, it's coming back. We come back to the present. And one practice that I suggest to people is a very simple one, is just pausing, pausing your thought, pausing whatever you're thinking, just you know, in between two part tasks when maybe, you know, you finish doing your emails, you're going to make a cup of tea or something. You're already pausing what you're doing, just to pause in your mind, wherever your mind is, wherever your thought is, just to pause the thought and notice how that feels, what happens. And what most people notice is when you just pause what you're thinking, the present just becomes more present because we're so busy thinking something. Our attention was off down that avenue, wherever it was going. When we pause, the present like reveals itself. Going, oh, here I am. Oh, there's birdsong. There's whatever. Oh, I'm noticing this in my body. And then in that pause, we again notice that sense of, ah, and it feels nicer because our thinking nearly always in one way or another is creating some subtle tension in ourselves. And so when we pause, that begins to soften and go. Yeah. Well, the thinking, let's let's talk about that thinking, because I don't know about you, and I'm sure our listeners can relate to this, that in that state of constant thinking at times 
like our head hurts from thinking so much. Yes, yes. And some of it is necessary. I, you know, don't want to put thinking down. Thinking is great. Oh, it's a good thing. <laughs> it's, it's a very good thing. It makes us what we are, makes our culture what it is. But we also think too much. You know, I'm thinking, if I look at my thinking, a lot of it is, as you said, unnecessary. Some of it is repeats. And so it's it's catching all that thinking that just preoccupies, preoccupies the mind. And most of it, we, we'd be better off without so yes, and when we're caught up in our thinking, that just leads us into more thinking, but leads us into maybe saying things or doing things which in hindsight weren't perhaps the best things to have done or said. So it also can lead us off astray as well when we get too caught up in it. Let's talk a little bit about meditation because it is uh, so much the flavor of the moment. You know, meditation has made a made great strides. Let's say in the last 10, 20 years, it was very popular, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, TM was coming on strong. And now there are so many different kinds of meditation and practices that um, are available to us. You say that meditation should be effortless. And I think that listeners should really tune up their ears for what you're about to share. Yes. Oh, I mean, there's so many ideas going around that meditation takes years of discipline and concentration. And sure, there's those practices and they, you know, they have their goals and not to decry them at all. But in terms of a simple everyday practices, just for coming back to a deeper sense of inner quiet and silence and being more present, effort gets in the way because any effort just makes the mind more tense. And what we're looking at essentially in meditation, the sort of meditation I'm interested in, is allowing the mind to relax, and which is allowing the attention to relax. So as soon as we put effort into it, we're going in the opposite direction. That's why I always emphasize no effort, no trying in meditation. And what I suggest to people is, just, just sitting quietly, best with the eyes closed, because then we're not so distracted by what's going on around us. And just noticing noticing the present moment, not focusing on anything, not, not focusing on the breath or anything particular. You, you may notice the breath, you may notice sensations in the body, you may notice sound, but just noticing, being curious as to what the present moment is like. And then what will inevitably happen is some thought will grab your interest and you'll be off on some thought that seems an interesting avenue. And then just saying, okay, right now, I don't need to explore that. And just, just make the choice not to follow that thought anymore. And when you do, the present is there again. You come back to the present and then just being interested in the present, but also, and this I think is one thing that I find important, it's not just noticing the present moment, but it's what we've already touched upon, noticing how you feel in the present moment. So if as you're sitting there, you're feeling a sense of ease or you're noticing a sense of greater quietness, including that, because that's also part of the present moment. And as we notice that, as we notice whatever it is, the ease, the quietness, that draws us in further. And so we just begin to settle down. The mind begins to settle down of its own accord. We don't need to do anything to make the mind quiet. We just need to stop putting fuel on the fire, the fuel of all our thoughts. We need to stop putting fuel on the fire and the mind will die down gently of its own accord. Yeah. And as I, my eyes are closed, I'm now leaning on my desk. <laughs> perhaps ready for a little nap. You know, I'm there. I just listening to your voice does that. But here's the thing that when we get to that place, we imprint that on our mind, right? And and then we start to crave that experience. I, I don't like the word crave. Okay, um, throw out the word crave. <laughs> I didn't mean that anyway. No, I desire. Desire. Yes, yes. Or yes, exactly. Um, yes, which is in a way good. But I think what happens is we, we know it's there and we know how to return to it. So what sometimes happens, people want to hold on to it. Oh, I'm feeling I'm feeling good. I'm feeling better. I'm feeling more joyful. They want to hold on to it, but you can't hold on to it. It'll go. And so it's about learning 
how to come back. And so, yes, there can be a desire, there can be a wish for that. It's a very natural wish because that's what we all want is to be feel quieter, to feel more at ease, to feel peace, more at peace. And so the more we have some practice to do, then the easier it is to just to come back. But yes, it can become a craving and attachment. And that's when, that's when it gets gets in the way a little bit. People come so attached to their practice and this is the right practice and this is what I must do. And you need to you need to let go of that as well. But that defeats the purpose of the practice. Exactly, right? exactly. It's just, as I say, it's just allowing the mind to relax. And it, it's not really getting anywhere. It's not getting to some new place. It's just coming back to a place that's there all along but which we don't notice because we're so busy with our attention directed out onto all the things we have to do and think about. What I like about your suggestions and the way that you go about, you know, the work within the book, letting go of nothing, is the idea that we don't need to have hours to do this each day. We don't even need 20 minutes, that it's really taking what's available to us or making time a couple of minutes even in the course of the day to reset and feel at home once again in ourselves. Yes, yes. I think both have value. I mean, sitting down for 20 minutes and having, you know, a long period of just coming back to that quietness is is valuable. It's good, valuable. It's a good taste. But also, what I talked about, that pausing, just pausing, we can do that many, many times a day. I mean, I actually leave notes around the house just saying pause. You know, I have to keep moving around every couple of days because once <laughs> I know where they are, I habituate to them. I don't see them anymore. But just just reminding me, just pause, just pause, only for a few seconds. It's like, ah, yes, okay, here I am. Yeah. I was lost. I was lost in that thought or doing this or whatever it was. Pausing, I come back to the present. I come back to myself. Ah, yes, here I am. And there's always, ah, I always, you know, there's a sense of relaxation, relief. And then something comes up and I'm off. But then, you know, we can do that many, many times a day. And I find that, you know, what I I call micro meditations, I think doing them often is as valuable as, you know, a long 20 minute meditation. I agree. They certainly feel really good. I mean, I, I, I too understand the value of the longer meditation and what it does for blood pressure and resting heart rate and, and all of that. But many of us, at least when we start out with this type of practice, 20 minutes is really a long time when like, you don't feel like you can spare a minute because you're so overprogrammed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can build up. I mean, if you find, you know, pausing for five seconds, 10 seconds really feels nice, then occasionally when you notice you're going to pause, just say, okay, I'm going to sit down and just pause for three minutes or I'm just going to sit down for five minutes and just just be quiet for five minutes and just notice how it is. And your mind is your mind will come in and go off again, but just notice it. Say, okay, just come back, be here, just coming back to being here. And so you can, you can gradually build up as well. Your thoughts, your troubles, and your stresses, they will all be waiting for you <laughs> when, yes, yes, when you yes, return yes. from that little micro break. Right. But that micro, even a micro break, you know, you're just relaxing. Because yeah. when you relax the mind, the body relaxes, and those tensions which get built up, they just get softened a little bit. It may not be you know, a major thing, but just you know, softening the tension many times a day has to be of value. And the impact not only of that value to ourselves and our own well-being, but finally how it affects others, you know, the community in which we live. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in some senses, we're doing it for ourselves, but we're also doing it for our relationships and for those around us. Because if we're feeling if we're feeling better, if we're feeling more at ease in ourselves, that's going to affect everybody around us. Yeah. We know that. And also, we're going to be, hopefully, a little less caught up in our misguided egoic thinking. And so we're a little less likely to burst out with some to somebody with something which we wish we hadn't said. Or we're going to be more able to listen to what they're saying because we won't be so distracted by what's going on in our own minds. So, yes, it definitely has a knock-on effect with everybody we interact with. And, you know, the act of letting be can be stowed upon another in the practice of listening, too. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yes, yes, yes. Because 
that is part of part of listening is is allowing them to be as they are. So what often happens in listening is somebody says something and our minds go off on something or I've got something to add here or this is where they're wrong or whatever it is or that reminds me of something that's not listening when when we're quieter inside then we can just allow them to be and we can allow ourselves to hear whatever it is they want to express Mm. Thank you, Peter Russell, for whispering words of wisdom with me today. <laughs> Let it be. Let it be. The book we're speaking of is Letting Go of Nothing, Relax Your Mind and Discover the Wonder of Your True Nature. To learn more about Peter Russell and his work and his book, please visit PeterRussell.com, on Twitter at Peter Russell, Facebook, that's Peter Russell Author, and on Instagram, Peter Russell Author. Thank you, Peter. This has been a a great joy for me. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it too. Thank you. Me too. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Gaiman on behalf of my guests, Sadvi, Bhagawati, Saraswati, and Peter Russell, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to each other. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>